0: This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What
1: is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. (laughs) Razeeb Khan's Unsupervised Learning You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about Orchid. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now, because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and today I am with a returning guest, Peter Nimitz, uh, talking to Peter about his new post, uh, the crisis of the 23rd century. This is not the 23rd century of like Star Trek. <laughs> this is the 23rd century BC. Uh, if you don't know why the 23rd century is a big deal, uh, you will know from this conversation, and I invite you to actually uh, dig into it um in more detail and if you already know that it's a big deal i think you're going to learn a lot um in this conversation cuz not only was it a big deal in mesopotamia or china or maybe the indus river you know indus valley civilization it was also a big deal in um inner asia and also in europe and we're going to talk about it and how that ties in to paleogenetics uh historical linguistics demography Etc. Etc. Um, I think you're gonna enjoy this. This is gonna be a pretty deep dive into a rich area that's still on the frontiers. And um, you know, check out Peter's post, Crisis of the 23rd Century: Appeal Rules from Spain to the Yangtze." Uh, it is on his Substack, Nemetz N E M E T S dot Substack dot com. And um, I'll put it, I mean, obviously there's a link to it here in the show notes, but just check it out. It's really good. It's really long, and um, I really enjoyed it. And that's why I wanted to have him on because uh, I think a lot of you guys are interested in the same sort of things. And, uh, you know, let's 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 dig into it a little bit in a conversation format. Peter, can you quickly introduce yourself and then give a high-level summary of what you're talking about here, and then we can go from, you know, topic to topic. Sure.
0: Uh, my name is Peter Nimitz. I write the nemitz Substack, stack N-E-M-E-T-S. Uh, really interested in prehistory, wild adventures, um, a lot of the same stuff you're interested in. And, uh, you know, a while back... You know, there was—I uh, think it was the coming of the Greeks. Um, you know, written back in the 1980s, talks about kind of the arrival of the Greeks from uh, you know the Balkans and Ukraine into uh, you know what's nowadays Greece. You know, happened around 23rd, uh, 22nd century BC. Uh, you, you know, and then I was written some other stuff, and it talks about kind of the crisis. Um, you know, the fall of Akkad. Uh, Akkad was kind of the big empire um, in Mesopotamia back. You know, and they collapsed in the 22nd century. And, uh, you know, also read about, um, you know, Egypt, the first intermediate period, which is kind of the end of the old kingdom um, and the transition into the uh, middle kingdom also occurs around the 23rd century. And when I was reading those by themselves, it was everything was just kind of by itself. I didn't really see any, um, you know, links between them. But then I was reading more and, you know, notice there's a lot of stuff going on in Central Asia and Siberia and Spain. um,
1: Wait, 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 bro. Wait, bro. Akkad. Tell them what Akkad is, because I think like a lot of people are not like quite clear because there's a movie, um, I think Scorpion King, where Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays the last of the Akkadians, the Akkadians, but the issue is it has nothing to do with the real Akkad, which is northern part of modern Mesopotamia. So go on.
0: Gotcha. So uh Mesopotamia originally have like Uru Consumer, uh you know, these very, very old civilizations that go all the way back to the four thousands. And in, uh, you know, kind of towards the end, I I think it was like the 25th or 24th century, you have the arrival of a Semitic group of people, um, the Akkadians, from kind of like northern uh, Mesopotamia, and they go and kind of conquer the rest of Mesopotamia and unite it under this kind of uh, large empire under a guy called Sargon. And it lasts, I think, about 180 years before it finally collapses, uh, and it's overrun by these barbarians from the Zagros Mountains in western Iran.
1: Yeah, that's not. I mean, I, I, that sounds like a good capsule. So go on with your narrative. I'm sorry I interrupted.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Uh, so as I was just kind of reading more and more about kind of the Middle Bronze Age, I realized you know there's all this different stuff that's going on basically across all of uh, Eurasia and uh, East Africa, and um, you know I found out I was actually not the first person to uh, figure this out. There's actually a series of papers that was uh, I think it was the Germans did it back in 2015. It was like 2200 BC. Um, you know, and just kind of archaeological summaries, mostly focusing on Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Spencer Wells, uh, your old boss, actually sent you know that over to me, so I read all of those. And, uh, you know, so I read a bunch of those, and then I put that together with the stuff I was reading about India, East Africa, and uh, Siberia, and wrote this giant post, uh, Crisis of the 23rd Century, which tries to tie everything together I think it was decently successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is basically it's you know it's kind of a synoptic post where uh, all of these individual elements uh, are spoken of or written about uh, pretty pretty extensively, actually. So if you read any up to date stuff on Mesopotamia or, in particular, actually China, um, they will talk about this crisis during this period. Uh, China saw a massive shift from uh, urban centers, kind of shifted towards the Yangtze. Uh, those all disappeared i think uh you know around this period or a little after and it shifted actually more towards the north in henan what eventually became you know shang dynasty core zone so uh, a lot of things uh happened during this period due to this crisis that had knock on effects that show up in the history that we know of and so can we start um can we start um was spain i think because um that was like one area where you dug pretty deep like talk about who was in spain and who came to spain and you know how that might be related to you know the crisis
0: sure so uh iberia um you know i prefer using iberia since there wasn't really like you know the spanish
1: don't arrive for a really long time yeah okay nerd that's fine
0: (laughs) so uh you know, Spain. Even going back in like the Paleolithic, Spain was intense. You know, intensely regional. You had stuff like the far northwest would be inhabited by like a totally different group of hunter gatherers from the people who lived uh, along the Mediterranean coast, and that pattern, uh, you know, survives, um, you know, for a really long time. And uh, you know, it's not super clear. You know, it looks like kind of the population movements from the eastern Mediterranean towards the west that led to the kind of rise of the Minoans, the uh, early Helladic peoples, that kind of thing, Um, you know, where they're more like Caucasian shifted rather than the... uh... So originally like Europe, it's the western hunter-gatherers, they kind of like rule the area, except Spain was kind of weird and where the northwest had this like separate group of hunter-gatherers, which had been in Europe for a really, really long time before the western Mm -hmm. hunter-gatherers kind of destroyed them.
1: Yeah, let yeah. me let, let me let me just jump in really uh, quickly here because this is like new information, new papers. Not everyone's read it. So the Western hunter gatherers, uh, Epipaleolithic or you know, yeah, they're epipaleolithic people, whatever Mesolithic people. Um, they are associated with an incursion, maybe from Caucasus, Eastern Mediterranean, ba- Balkans, show up in Italy, and like say like after the LGM around 15,000 years ago, these are the hunter gatherers, qua hunter gatherers that that the farmers are meeting, except there are a few places like Spain where there's an older lineage that goes back to the Magdalenians, um, you know, the cave painting people, et cetera, et cetera. And there's admixture between the newcomers and the Magdalenians so that there's a synthetic hunter gatherer population. And when we get these farmers coming in, they mix with these hunter gatherers and you can, now, with the best genetics, you could detect the Magdalenian sample. So the stylized fact, we used to say, we as in people that read this stuff, uh, like maybe with uh, Kyume Fu's paper about the Ice Age and genetics was basically all the ancestor of the Magdalenians is gone. But that's not true. In places like Spain, you can detect some of it. It's at low fractions, but it's there. And that's what you're alluding to.
0: Yeah. Like there's still people in Spain even today with Y-haplogroup C, but like a really divergent lineage that goes to the Magdalenians rather than, you know, the more common uh, East Asian uh, variants.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, you're mentioning C, uh, that's not a common Y-haplogroup for Europeans. Mostly Europeans are R, J, um, G, um, E. (laughs) So if you look at the letters, you can actually like, C in the clustering of the letters, that it's either derived from ancestral North Eurasian RQ, uh, you know, P, P star, I think, or the ones like J, K, E, that are all clustered together out of the Middle East. Uh, and then there's I, uh, which is related to J, K, and that's associated with the Mesolithic. When you're talking about C, you're talking about stuff that's more associated with East Eurasian populations today. But... 45,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, everyone's barely out of the Middle East. It wasn't as well sorted back then. That's what you're alluding to. Yes. And so, you know, go on with your, you know. Sure. So, um,
0: you know, kind of the, you know, cultural racial whatever you want to call it diversity um you know still even after kind of the arrival of the uh early european farmers which the early european, european farmers like the closest related group to them today is the sardinians were like 80 uh, percent early european farmer in ancestry um it looks like they kind of sort uh fairly early on like there's some of them that go into uh you know northwest africa um you know, even back in like the 4,000s. But uh, eventually, you know, the hunter-gatherers, they have this big resurgence, 4,400 BC. They take over the uh, kind of surrounding uh, farmer groups and kind of mix in with them to create, uh, you know, the bulk of the population which uh, lived in Iberia uh, prior to the arrival of the Indo-Europeans around uh, 2,500, 2,400 BC. It looks like kind of the southeastern group of uh, Iberians might have had contacts with like the Minoans since they do have that kind of like uh Caucasian hunter-gatherer ancestry or like Iran Neolithic that's more like Eastern Mediterranean shifted um so I I think there were probably like multiple language families spoken in uh Iberia at the time there are probably some groups that were uh you know speaking the early European farmer languages some of them are speaking you know the western hunter-gatherer languages like you know Basque I think is probably a western hunter-gatherer language um you know and then some are speaking these uh kind of eastern mediterranean languages maybe distantly related to georgian or something um so what happens is uh you know in the you know around 2500 bc uh it looks like there's like very recent paper like within the last week actually um there was like an epidemic of like this louse born uh disease that looks like it kind of ravaged europe and that as well as the, uh, you know, it looks like it's specifically spread from like, kind of like Scandinavia um, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, so the combination of that plus the uh, Indo-Europeans like figuring out how to make these really high quality boats, um, you know, kind of enabled what had turned into like these Viking pirates to do like these g- kind of giant land invasions of uh, France, Britain and uh, Iberia. Um so they go and like a couple hundred so you know two three hundred years before uh chris you know chris the twenty third century, uh, they go and they successfully invade kind of like northwestern um Iberia, even as they're taking over like Britain and um you know France now in the southern part of in you know northern Iberia was kind of primitive at that point, it had the bell beaker culture, which was uh, it's not like it's a multi what would it be like a multi-ethnic uh, material culture. Like
1: there were a bunch of different groups that had it. Um, and um, well, so just just uh, just jump sure. in real quick about the bell beakers. Uh, there's arguments and debates about it, but basically the first. I mean, the closest to a consensus position is that the first bell beakers are in the Tagus River area in western southwest Iberia, Portugal today. And this motif of the Bell Beakers spread north and east. Somehow it got into Indo-European-speaking populations. And they're the ones that really, really spread the Bell Beaker culture all over Western Europe. It's pretty much ubiquitous and pervasive in places like Britain and France. But in Southern Europe, you know, it shows up in... Uh, you know I think the Ballarics and then also in Sicily, just like in pockets uh, there 's some bell beaker items and probably migration into North Africa, but not extensive and then you have places like uh, Central and Eastern Europe where there 's kind of like indo European back migration from the west from the Rhine valley. Uh, the Neolithic farmer ancestry increases a little bit because those people had absorbed uh, that ancestry in the border between France and Germany and the Rhineland, and the bell beakers also show up and um, in Large parts of, of Western Scandinavia, they overwhelm the, uh, o- the older Badlax culture, and they're associated with uh, haplogroup R1B, I think the M269 mutation. Um, I'm going to feel stupid if that's not the right one. But yeah, in any case, uh, okay, it is the right one. Uh, so that's just the context that I want to set into this multi-ethnic Iberia that you're talking about. So
0: you've got kind of the Indo-European groups, or at least I should say Indo-European derived groups since, you know, it's very possible that uh, these groups ended up adopting the Basque language for some weird reason. Like the Basques have the matrilineal culture. So, you know, you could have these Indo-European war bands that would get assimilated into these uh, kind of existing, um, you know, female centered uh, clan networks. Um, so it's very possible they're all, you know, Basque speaking, even though they obviously, I think they were like 40% uh, corded wear and ancestry.